Well, good afternoon again. I'm John Allison. I'm the new president of Cato. I want to thank you all for being here. Uh, I know many of you uh, and your support and participation in the what I call the Greater Free Society movement is, is greatly appreciated, uh, as is your insights on really a set of very important issues. Um, I want to uh, also recognize uh, Jim Dorn and thank him. This is Cato's uh, 30th annual monetary conference. When, when Jim started this, not that many people were interested in monetary policy, uh, and he's done a great job of ensuring this conference is the kind of intellectual event that people are interested in that gives an objective and comprehensive overview of important issues, and I, I congratulate him in that regard. Thank you, Jim. Just running a conference for 30 years is an achievement. I also have to say I think this is a really important event. Now, I have to, this partly reflects my, my bias. When I was a CEO of BB&T for uh, uh, 20 years, I became convinced that uh, the Federal Reserve was second only to Congress in destroying wealth and well-being. Uh, I'm now convinced they're trying to move into first place. That's their goal. <laughs> uh, I do want to make a couple comments about uh, Cato since I'm the new president and I've been on a learning curve and, and my experience, frankly, has been very, uh, very positive. Uh, in fact, this, uh, I guess, Monday we had a, a meeting of our uh, department managers and scholars and, and leaders of our various centers and we went around the room and I was amazed how much goes on uh, at Cato, particularly given the resources we have. In a typical day, Cato scholars are quoted 40 to 50 times in major media publications and that's because they're regarded as objective, rational observers and defenders of some very fundamental uh, principles. Uh, we continue to produce books and policy papers that uh, have had an impact over a long period of time. We have numerous conferences like this. In fact, a, a couple weeks ago, we had a conference on what I think is an important and interesting issue. We had a conference on uh, uh, what are the lessons for the U.S. from the failed uh, European welfare state. You would hope we might learn a few lessons from the failed European welfare state. Um, the, uh, the other thing I found interesting is the quality of our interns. Uh, we have very bright people that go through our intern program who will be, in many cases, future leaders in, in a wide variety of fields. And when I talk to other uh, free market, free society organizations, I uh, often encounter people that years ago went through the Cato intern program and, and attribute that to their both interest in libertarian uh, free market ideas and their, and their success in, in that regard. Um, it's... Uh, it's interesting, too, we have several centers that have made a big difference. One is our Constitutional Studies Center, which most people may not realize, but going back all the way to the early 1990s, they began the debate uh, to restore the U.S. Constitution around the whole issue of the enumerated powers, and we probably would never would have gotten Obamacare to the, to, uh, the uh, Supreme Court if it hadn't been for their efforts, even though we lost. We, we got it there, and we have a number of other policy centers like that. On the other hand, as the new uh, leader of Cato, I, I can easily make a list of about 100 other things we need to do. Uh, we are outnumbered <laughs> by people that don't share libertarian beliefs that are status in their nature, so it's a, an opportunity to do more things and do them better, and all you need to do that is more financial resources. So if anybody wants to give me a check, I'm accepting them on the way out today. Um, it is uh, it's my... Uh, pleasure to introduce uh, John Taylor. Probably for almost everybody here, John doesn't need an introduction. I know personally I've read his books and read his articles over the years, and they've certainly influenced uh, my thinking, uh, but I'm going to give you a, a formal introduction. John is the uh, George uh, Schultz Senior Fellow in Economics at the Hoover Institute 
and the Marion Robert Raymond Professor of Economics at Stanford University. He chairs the Hoover Working Group on Economic Policy and is director of the Stanford Introductory Economic Center. John's fields of expertise are monetary policy, physical policy, and international economics. That's a pretty broad uh, swath. His book, Getting Off the Track, was one of the first on the financial crisis. And his latest book, which I have read and I recommend to you, is First Principles, Develop an Economic Plan to Restore the American uh, Prosperity. As many of you know, John has been very involved in, 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 uh, with the Treasury from uh, President Ford on through Carter and the, and the Bushes. Uh, he is a Bradley Prize winner, an Adam Smith Award winner, an Alexander Hamilton Award winner, and a Treasury Distinguished Service Award and other awards. He is an outstanding scholar. But I'll tell you what really endears John to me is he has been, since the beginning of this financial crisis, one of the few voices that's recognized the myth that status have created, which was that deregulation and greed on Wall Street uh, caused a financial crisis, which is simply not true. What John points out is that it's flawed macroeconomic policies from the U.S. government and other governments, and specifically the Federal Reserve, that created the monetary excesses, and he believes that Freddie and Fannie spurred the boom uh, and the crisis, uh, which was then misdiagnosed mis mis as a liquidity instead of a uh, solvency credit risk problem. And I, I happen to totally agree with John, so I know he's right, and that's fun to talk about. <laughs> okay. Thank Thank you. Uh, thanks, John, for the kind introduction, and uh, Jim for inviting me and for uh, running this conference series uh, for so long. Uh, I thought I'd take advantage of the fact that it's the 30th anniversary and uh, focus on monetary policy over the last 30 years and kind of asked ask about what we've learned. And of course, there's this uh, subtitle in the title for this year's conference is the next 30 years. So I'd like to kind of draw some implications from the past 30 for the next 30, if that's at all possible. I have, uh, if you like, in a nutshell, what I'd like to say here. And I'll say that first and then get on with, I guess, the facts and the details, which are so important. Um, it seems to me, if you look at the last 30 years or so, sort of a couple of sections to look at. Maybe one-third of the, the last one-third and the first two-thirds, something like that. So it sort of divide up the last 30 years into two, and the first part, um, 80s and 90s, basically. And that was a period where economic performance was, I think, by any measure, very good. I'm going to give some charts to illustrate that. Uh, and then you have the last uh, component of this, maybe the last six, seven, you don't know how to measure it exactly, but it's the last third of this 30 years where, policy, where, where economic performance has been just egregious, great recession, uh, financial crisis, et cetera. And in terms of monetary policy, if you divide up those 30 years in roughly the same way, look at the first two-thirds of it, I think if you look at monetary policy, it was really working pretty well. And uh, looking at it differently than you look at the overall performance in the economy, you can see some attractive features, a lot of the kind of things that uh, people in this room have been advocating. And then if you look at the last 10 years, the last one-third of this 30-year period, I think you can see how monetary policy has gotten off track. And I think that's an enormous lesson if we can say it's supported by the facts because it suggests really pretty clearly for the next 30 years we should try to go back and doing the kind of things we did uh, in the first two-thirds of this past 30. 
So let me d delve into that as much as I can in this, in this talk, and then we can delve it even further in the Q&A. Um, this is a picture of real GDP growth in the United States. Uh, it goes back to the uh, late 40s, and it's uh, quarterly changes. It's one of my favorite charts. I, you look at it, sometimes it looks like one of those electrocardiograms when a patient's in trouble. Uh, in fact, I really like to use this when I talk to doctors about the problem with our economy. Um, but uh, I've also illustrated an important part of this, uh, these ups and downs, and that is the period where it looked much more stable than earlier. And that's sometimes economists call it the great moderation. I used to call it the long boom. But it's a period where volatility diminished substantially, and the periods where growth was negative, uh, recessions were very short and, and mild. And of course, if you look over to the right part of that diagram, you see it didn't last. This good period, great moderation didn't pass. It culminated with the Great Recession. Uh, and in addition, the recovery from that Great Recession is very, very low compared to, for example, to the recovery uh, from the last big recession we had before the Great Moderation, where you saw growth uh, more than twice as high in this period. So, so economic performance has deteriorated uh, by, by this measure. Uh, look at unemployment. I think the story is pretty much the same. This is the unemployment rate over that same period of time. And if you look back at the, the, the two-thirds of the 30-year interval I'm talking about, you see basically declines in unemployment. You see the business cycle, of course, are basically down. And then if you look at the more recent period, you see unemployment uh, skyrocketing again, almost to the levels we saw uh, at the end of the 1970s. So that's the economic performance, and there's many ways to measure that technically. Look at standard deviations, look at depths of recessions, look at frequency of recessions, whatever it is. It's the same story, and it's quite remarkable. And, and to be sure, I'm focusing on the United States in this uh, talk, but the same kind of things you can look at in other countries. The years would be somewhat different, uh, but it's very similar uh, when you look at this globally. Now. If you look at policy, I think you can also see a change that corresponds to this period. Okay, and I want to do that by first looking at the inflation rate over uh, for the same history, and you can see the really another good aspect of the 80s and 90s until recently, and that is the inflation rate came down dramatically. Um, it it really undid a big part of the mess of the late 60s and 70s, the Great Inflation. And has, and has remained relatively low. It's, there's, there's still some volatility of inflation, but it's a much better performance on the inflation rate. And that also is something that's uh, it really be, got started with this change in policy. Now, I wanna, I, there's a million ways to represent the change in policy. Some people have uh, been referring to policy rules. I'll talk about that in a minute. But I thought it would be best just to try to show you kind of the basics in, in terms of an inflation chart about how I think of the policy having changed. First to the good and then to the bad. So I drew a line here at 4% inflation. And then on that line, I'm going to show you two points. One is the first quarter of 1968. That was when the great inflation was beginning. And you can see the federal funds rate was 4.8%. 4% inflation, 4.8 federal funds, almost the same. Very, very, very close. So almost, almost no effort to be responsible with respect to price stability, with respect to the Fed. 
Then you take that same 4% and you go forward to the, if you like, the good period, and you see the federal funds rate was 9.7%. 4% inflation, 9.7%. So a, a much more, I say, price stability conscious Federal Reserve trying to take the action it needed to keep inflation from continuing to rise, and of course it didn't. It came down showing the success of that kind of policy. So that 9.7%, of course, is just symbolic of the kind of policy that lasted for a quarter of a century. But it's quite visible when you look at it this way. And in both these times, the economy was operating uh, at about the same level of capacity. It was just not, neither recessions or basically reasonably good uh, times. Now I'm going to draw to illustrate how we kind of have switched back again and gotten off track, if you like. I'm going to draw another line. This is a 2% inflation. Okay, and it's just for me to measure in simple terms how policy has changed. I'm also going to show two points on this 2% line. One is from 1977, first quarter to be specific, and the funds rate was 5.5%. Okay, 2% inflation, 5.5 federal funds rate. Now I'm going to show you that same line in 2000, on the same line, 2003 is same, another point. Third quarter of 2003. Federal funds rate was 1%. In both cases, the economy is kind of about the st same level of capacity, unemployment, however you want to measure the real side of the economy. This is an enormous change. And in fact, it seems to me the thing that you have to point to if you want to at least have uh, an adequate explanation of the crisis and why you're going into trouble. I think those very low interest rates, which now characterize not just that single quarter, but a span of time, at least from 2003, 2004, and 2005, sometimes called the too low for too long period, instigated a lot of the uh, excess risk taking. It certainly exacerbated the housing boom. And I think, therefore, uh, in a large respect, um, uh, a cause, not the only cause, there's other kinds of policies that have been discussed today. Um, certain regulatory rules not being uh, followed, for example, but for the mo and Fannie and Freddie. But for the most part, this has got to be a big part of the story. And I think the more that people do research on it, the more that seems to be the case. Uh, it's, of course, disputed by the Federal Reserve. They argue the rates weren't too low, even though a 1% is 2% inflation rate for, for many reasons. But the more and more evidence that comes in, just got a paper the other day by Michael Bordeaux, looked at many different countries, the same kind of phenomenon uh, can explain uh, the excesses. Okay, so, so if you like, this is my, my first very specific way to represent the way the policy, monetary policy has changed, just looking at its response to inflation. Now, there's another lot of other things that happened, and some of them discussed already at, at this conference uh, in the last uh, one-third period of, of my 30-year interval. Um, what I refer to so far is what happened before the crisis, before the panic. What about during the panic? Well, during the panic, there was also a lot of activity. And I think for the most part during the panic, during September, October, November 2008, those were probably reasonable things to do, what central banks generally do. And so I have a little chart to illustrate that too, and that's what this chart is. This is a chart of what's called reserve balances. It's just the deposits that banks hold at the Fed, the electronic deposits that banks hold at the Fed. And it's, it's an important thing to look at because it's really what's used not only to provide liquidity when it's needed to the financial system if it freezes up, but also it's what's used to finance all of the purchases of long-term securities and mortgage-backed securities where the Fed gets its money. It just credits the banks uh, with that. 
So you can see in this chart, there was a huge intervention, big supply of liquidity in September, October, November 2008. Also, if you look at the chart, there was a similar action back at 9-11-2001. 9-11-2001, the payment system really froze up because so partly from the destruction in New York. So the Fed responded. That, that was $60 billion, by the way. You can't see it very well now. I, I, was, I, was, I, was, I was in the government at that time. I remember Don Cohn coming over to my office and said, John, look at this, $60 billion. It went in, it was terrific. It came out right away, too. Notice how it came out. And so I think that, is, that was classic good central banking. And to some extent, this second blip, although much bigger, I don't know if it was the right size. Part of that is because of the international swaps. But it represents the primary dairy credit facility. Um, it represents other kinds of loans to the banks, as well as international swaps. And so that seems reasonable, too. Now, if you were thinking about good central bank policy and kind of rules-based policy, the kind of things that we think are right, you say, well, you've done that. Then it's time to undo it when the panic ends. That would have been that. Okay, And I call that counterfactual because that didn't happen. Instead, we had QE1, what I call QE1, which is the large-scale purchases following the intervention in the panic in 2008. We didn't draw down those. We didn't go back to, if you like, normal monetary policy. Instead, we continued to do the quantitative easing. And that's what happened to reserve balances as a result. And they're drifting down a little bit now, uh, but they're still extraordinarily high, and they will increase uh, further uh, when the QE3 comes into operation. Now, it seems to me this, is, this particular aspect has a lot of problems to it. Some of them discussed already. Um, there's a huge amount of controversy about whether these purchases of securities or the increase in reserves has done any good. I've done research on it. I can't find that it's any, done much good to the economy. The Fed has some studies that says it worked. The chairman of the Fed says it created 2 million jobs. When I looked at those, those studies, they just don't seem to me to hold up. They're like announcement effects. And announcement effects, they show some effect for a while, but then they drift off uh, quite quickly. So it's very controversial what was having any, ha, have, has had any effect. I worry it's had a negative effect. David Malpass talked about that to some extent today. It's a real risk. How are those reserves going to be removed? If you remove them too quickly, will they be contractionary? Or if you don't remove them, will there be inflation? It's two-sided risk, it seems to me. That, that's another aspect of policy uncertainty that, that are, it's facing firms. Um, the very nature of quantitative easing is it's, it's unpredictable. Um, traders speculate all the time. They make money on it. Maybe that's why some of them like the quantitative easing, uh, about whether it's going to happen or not. And so it's, it's by its nature, it's much more discretionary, much less rule-like than an interest rate policy um, has been. And then, and then finally, this goes well beyond uh, what I would think as a reasonable definition of monetary policy. It's going in to help particular sectors. It's actually financing a large fraction of the fiscal deficit in fiscal year 11, 2011, 77% of the new debt issued, which were purchased by the Fed. And so it's changing the nature of monetary policy and, and I think questioning the Fed's independence. It's leading people, at least, to question the Fed's independence, which, of course, has its own negative effects as well. So I put this, then, in the category of policy has become more discretionary, if you like, unlike the 80s and 90s, which is good. It's, it's not looking at the performance of the economy. It's looking at policy directly. And it's a change, it seems to me, you'd have to worry about if you were trying to evaluate uh, economic policy. Now, one of the rationales for this quantitative easing 
that gets a lot of attention is the so-called zero bound on the interest rate. And so I want to talk about that a little bit because I think it's important for, if you like, giving a thorough uh, evaluation or examination of the policy. Okay? And uh, the zero bound effectively means is when the, the federal funds rate hits or gets very close to zero, the Fed says, oh, we can't lower it anymore, and so we got to do something else. And that something else has been quantitative easing. That's how the, that's how the story is frequently told, if you like, the narrative or the rationale. So let's look at this story a little bit. This is um, actually, a, I'm, I'm able to look at this story now in a way I couldn't have done a year ago because the Fed has tr started to provide some information about how it's thinking about policy rules. Janet Yellen, in particular, has done this. I think that's a, that's a good idea. And it enables civil society, if you like, to participate more in the debate over monetary policy. So based on what she has revealed, um, economists, and, and now I'm using some results from Bob DiClemente, an economist uh, at Citigroup. Um, and what he's done is he took two policy rules for the federal funds rate and showed what they look like in the last few years. So this goes back to 2005, and it's projected 2015. And this is his chart. I'm just trying to be objective as possible, taking someone else's chart, even though that red line is the so-called Taylor rule. So you can see there's a zero in that line, a zero in the chart, flat there. And you can see the red line, the solid red line, hardly goes below zero at all. And it actually basically follows the federal funds rate down to zero quite well, and then it's starting to lift off uh, a little bit now. And then it's projected to continue lifting off. By the way, the little dots, those are the projections of FOMC members as of the time this chart was developed. Okay, and so it's actually, most of those are below, somewhat, but not entirely below those, this red line. The gray line is uh, what Janet Yellen refers to as the modified Taylor rule. And it's different in the sense it responds, as much, responds much more to the state of the economy. It responds twice as much to unemployment or the output gap is frequently measured, okay? And in addition, it estimates a much larger output gap or a much larger uh, reduction in capacity during a recession. And so it actually would suggest the interest rate should be a bit minus six or minus seven during the worst of the crisis. And so that's the rationale for the quantitative easing. But it's not a rationale that holds up if you use the kind of policy that was used and people have already referred to it during the 1980s and 1990s. Okay, so there's really a question about whether the zero bound is, is, is effectively binding. And I don't think it is. I don't think it has been. And it's a much different interpretation of, of the facts. Uh, now, I, um, I think there's two reasons why this gray line is not a good way to think about things. One is it reacts way too much to uncertain variables like the output gap, which we have a lot of trouble measuring. It's, again, the reaction is twice as large. Moreover, it, it estimates the output gap to be much larger than reality. And so I just have a table. I think the table will be hard to see, especially from the back, but it just shows you the extent to which um, the, that, that big negative number doesn't seem correct to me. Um, this is a, a table, it's put together by the San Francisco Fed. Uh, president John Williams started doing this before he came president with a colleague, Justin Widener. And they basically just surveyed a bunch of estimates of output gaps. So that's sort of the estimate of how far below you are normal in the economy. And um, 
And right now, the, as, of, as of the first quarter of this year, the average was minus 3.1. And the red line is what's assumed in that line that I showed you for the Fed, which justifies quantitative easing. It's gigantic compared to, this, to the average. It's higher than any of the other numbers. And it's gigantic compared to the average. So it seems to me we don't, we're just learning about this because the Fed has put the information out. But it definitely suggests a, a really a large overestimate of the variable that would go into a policy rule if you were trying to do the good kind of policy that occurred in the 80s and in the 1990s. If you also look at the very low um, right-hand part of this chart, you see the mean, minus 3.1. But you also see the standard deviation. That's the variance, uh, standard deviation across the survey responders, if you like, the surveys in this study. And uh, 1.8 is pretty large if you think about the way these numbers fluctuate. And studies that have tried to look at the optimal way that monetary policy should react to the output gap find that if the output gap uncertainty is that large, the, the response should be nearly zero, not the large response that the Fed has. So there's a lot of reasons to worry about the way that the QE has been justified, even if you're just sticking to straight um, economic um, uh, calculations. Uh, going back to this chart on the zero bound, um, one thing that's has also arisen as a result of the, of the zero bound problem is this forward guidance issue. Forward guidance represents this struggle of the FOMC to try to indicate to the market, to the rest of us, where it's going with respect to interest rates. That's part of we're going to hold rates low to, through 2015 or so, mid-2015, or we are not going to raise them until the economy is really roaring. If it's just a recovery, we won't raise them that much. However, it's articulated. So there's a real struggle about how to articulate that. And the reason is, is those, those dotted lines in the picture are below the red line, OK? And so sometime, you've got to get back to that. And so they're trying to describe, when are we going to get back? And if they were not deviating from what I think is a reasonable way to think about policy, you wouldn't have to worry about all that forward guidance. And the forward guidance itself it causes a huge amount of uncertainty about when the Fed will move. Are they really going to keep rates to zero to 2015? Is that a commitment, or is that just an indication? So it adds more uncertainty, more, if you like, reliance on discretion, which we know has been problematic. It also causes what economists refer to as time inconsistency, because effectively what the Fed wants to do is promise a lower rate in the future, then will be the right thing to do then. You can see that in this picture. It may be the right thing to do in 2014 to have a funds rate at 2%, but they're going to promise at zero. But what are they going to do in 2014 or 2015 when it's obvious to everybody it should be 2% and they're still at zero? Most people think they couldn't commit to that. It's a time inconsistency. Also, the, the use of some of the methodology it's, that has um, recently been uh, utilized at the Federal Reserve to justify the, the dotted lines Sometimes it's called optimal control policy. Uh, and that itself is subject to the same inconsistency over time that a rules-based policy uh, would not be. So this is another reason why I think we're in this phase now of a high amount of discretion and uncertainty, which is detrimental. And, um, and again, you compare it to the good periods, uh, we didn't have this. Last thing I want to say about the zero-bound issue, which is really so important is even if you thought the gray line was the right way to think about policy, it's not clear that quantitative easing would be or should have been the right thing to do. 
I've been doing research on policy rules for this 30-year period at least. And always we would simulate models that when the zero bound was hit, we wouldn't do QE. We would go back to Milton Friedman's constant growth rate rule. That was what you do. Okay, hit zero. Actually, we'd, we'd truncate a little bit more, 0.5 or something, whatever, one. And then you'd move to a money growth rule. It seems to me that is the kind of sensible thing you, you do because remember these interest rate rules that people have found that worked came in influenced by Milton Friedman and constant money growth rate rule, trying to find an alternative or better ones that would work. And if that one stops because of zero bound, the natural thing is to go back to the, to the symbol one. But that certainly didn't happen. In fact, um, here's a chart that illustrates that, last chart for it, I'll put up. And what this is, is a chart of M2 growth. That's the blue line. The scale for the blue lines over on the left. So you can see it's up and down. This, goes, this is a, from 2008 to the present. Hugely volatile. It's that kind of fluctuations in money growth that monetary scholars, including Milton Friedman, would always complain about. In 1968, Milton Friedman, was, his presidential address was published, and it has a whole paragraph describing ups and downs in M2 growth, showing how, how they were detrimental to the economy. So it seems to me you, this has been, not been a period where money growth has been stable. And in fact, why is that money growth volatile? We don't know all the reasons, but I think a big reason is the quantitative reason itself. And the money multiplier is not stable. David Malpai showed some pictures of that. But it's not so unstable that big, gigantic injections of reserves don't move money growth around. And so to illustrate that, I put the red line up there, which is the growth rate of reserve balances, basically. Sorry, the growth rate of the monetary base. And of course, that scales on the right, to be sure, so it's much larger numbers. But nonetheless, it's a pretty close relationship. So I think, if anything, these ups and downs in the growth rate of the monetary base due to quantitative easing has, has if you like, caused the uncertainty associated with, at least with the volatility of M2 growth and other things. And, and we didn't need to have that happen if we just try to keep money growth steady. I think, as Milton Friedman taught us long ago, the economy would have worked much better. So there's lots of ways to look at this. I've given you some charts, but the basic story is that we moved away from a rules-based policy in the 80s and 90s until sometime more recently. You don't know how to pinpoint that exactly. I had 2003. We don't know exactly. And we moved to a much more discretionary kind of monetary policy. Um, there's lots of reasons for it. I mentioned that probably the biggest one now is this zero bound. Um, and when you look through them carefully, they don't seem to add up as a reason to have departed. Yes, the crisis, the panic period 2008 required traditional central bank action like it did in September 11, 2001. But that is not a reason to move entirely away from policies that worked. So my conclusion is that the lesson for the next 30 years is to take this seriously. Take these results seriously and say, we've got to find a way to get back to the kinds of policies. Not going to be exactly the same. The world is different. And I just briefly mentioned the international aspects of this. Uh, other countries have to learn about this as well. And each country is different. But the story is quite similar. And so I think the most important thing is that, that we can do, and there's different ways to do this, is to try to find a way for monetary policy to get back to a rules-based strategy. Um, we can talk about the strategy to do that, 
I say as soon as you can in a deliberative uh, way, but that's, that's another debate. But I would say, just to conclude, that a lot of people say, well, are you telling us that there's no gas, no ammunition left at the Fed, they just have to give up? They say, no, I'm telling you exactly the opposite. The most con there's an enormous amount of good things the Fed can do right now to help the economy grow, to have the kind of performance we had in the past. All those have to do with doing the things that worked well in the past. It would be enormous positive for the economy. Uh, and, and the sooner we get to this in a deliberative way, uh, the better it will be, especially in this environment of huge policy uncertainty with respect to other policies. Thank you very much. We have, we have a few minutes for questions. And where are the ladies and gentlemen with the mics? Here we go. Hi, uh, my name is Sam Baker. I'm from Transnational Research. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Taylor, for your um, presentation. I really uh, appreciate it. My question has to do with uh, a, a new flavor of the day rule-based uh, system, and that's the NGDP, nominal GDP targeting. And uh, you know, people who are for rules use the what your argument that rules are better than than discretion to justify this NGDP, I, I find it problematic in, in a number of ways. And do you, do you uh, agree with that, that, that there are problems with this, or, or do you think rules are always better than not? Well, it's a very good question, and it comes up a, a lot. Um, nominal uh, GDP targeting is something that has actually been around for a while, but there's a renewed interest in it, that's for sure. And uh, in a way, there's some attractive features to it, because you basically, you know, sort of a combination of steady growth and, and steady inflation. It's characterized in different ways. And sometimes it's, it's explained in a way, well, since the money aggregates are hard to control, they're, they're not um, reliable, it's really M times V that you'd want to have, and that means nominal GDP. And so all that makes sense. I think the, the, the thing that you have to add to this, though, is that it doesn't describe what to do. Um, at least a lot of the proposals don't describe what to do. Some is to do anything to make that happen. So I think what has to go along with that is a rule for the instruments of policy. So nominal GDP is a rule for the, it's like a, a goal or a target, sometimes as an alternative to, to inflation targeting. But in addition, you have to have a rule of some kind of what the central bank will do, what its decisions are, so, so that it can be held accountable, right? This is, well, we deviated from the rule because, so it'll tell us more about that. Um, but you can't do that, uh, at least as well, with outcome-based um, targets. So I think that it's very important to have a, a rule for the instrument. That could be the money supply, could be reserves, could be the interest rate. And I guess there may be appeal to Milton Friedman on this a little bit. Um, I think that he is insistent always on rules for instruments. Um, and I think that's the reason, is a more accountable monetary policy works with a lag. And I'd add to that is you really have to think about what the policymakers are doing. What do they do? And if you just have just to have the goal, in a sense, they could do anything. QE1, QE2, twist, whatever it, it takes. And so that is not the kind of, I think, if you uh, rules that rules-based policy that I think we should be striving for, at least alone, it has to be supplemented with these other things. <clears throat>
Uh, Tyler Goodspeed, uh, PhD student and regression monkey at Harvard. Um, so would you be in support of, or are you in support of an expanded Taylor rule incorporating capital prices? Asset prices? Asset prices. Well, asset prices, um, I would say, I'd say basically is short answer is no. And the, the reason is that asset prices are, tend to be quite volatile. And um, so if you're kind of reacting to the stock market, you know, you're going to be moving the instruments of policy around a lot. You're reacting to the exchange rate, the same kind of thing occurs, reacting to housing prices that could occur. So I would say that you got to be very careful about any mechanical type of reaction to asset prices. And in fact, the many economists, including myself, have gone back uh, and, and, and simulated how policy like that would work. And it turns out it really can make things worse. It's too, it becomes the, the volatility in the a market, an asset price, gets translated through monetary policy into more volatility in the economy. So it's not um, a good thing to do on those grounds um, at all. And I would add one other thing. Some of the um, arguments in favor of reacting to asset prices like that um, are based on the experience 2004 and 5, roughly, where you had the run-up of housing prices in the United States, and, and by the way, in other countries. And, um, but if you look at um, the, the regressions or the statistical analysis, you find that a lot of that is because the interest rate was too low, excluding the asset prices. You know, it was too low excluding. So if you had those, that asset price explosion and the, and the monetary policy was tight enough based on traditional measures, then I'd, I think there'd be a case to look into that. But now it seems to me it would have been, been sufficient just to bring uh, rates up to what had worked in the past. Tom Cargill, University of Nevada. Um, the Fed would defend itself and say, well, John, we are using a rule. Um, and uh, so I don't know what your beef is. But, this, but my, inter my, my interpretation of this is that under Greenspan, using the Taylor rule, the output gap, the actual output gap was not very large. And so under the dual mandate of the Fed, they could focus more on inflation. Now the output gap is very, very large, and under that dual mandate, then the Fed has the discretion to game the rule to focus on something else other than price stability. So my question is, uh, do you think your rule is invariant to this dual mandate, or is it the uh, that is is the dual mandate a problem? Okay, that's a big question. Um, I think there's a tendency. Uh, and this is a real um, issue that needs to be addressed for anyone interested in rules-based monetary policy. There's a real tendency for people to modify the rules to fit <laughs> the current circumstance, if you like. <laughs> I sometimes call it, it's, um, what's, the, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, you know, there's this expression about a wolf in sheep's clothing. Well, this is kind of discretion in rules clothing. <laughs> uh, and it worries me. I mean, I'm not saying people purposely do it, but it's, it happens. You know, you're, you're, you're thinking of what it should happen. So that's a danger. 
And it, it leads me to, to be kind of uh, extra insistent on sticking to one kind of rule, probably, because you don't want to, you know, you, you, this, is, this is a difficult subject. You, you, you can't say something's fixed and concrete for all time, but it definitely leads you in the direction of don't screw around with something that is working, okay? So that's one part of the answer to your question. Um, the, um, the other part is about the dual mandate. So I have uh, observed the dual mandate came, of course, in 1977, the Federal Reserve Act. Um, it was repeated in 1978 in Humphrey Hawkins. Um, it in that sense, it came in at an extraordinarily discretionary period. It was ghost top policy with respect to fiscal and monetary policy, so it was kind of natural. But Paul Volcker and Alan Greenspan, through their whole periods, really would argue that the best way to achieve this dual mandate is to focus on price stability. Paul, Paul Volcker, especially in times with unemployment much higher than today, would go on TV and say that. And so they would do everything they could to interpret that law in a way that generated this, I guess, this more rule-like type of policy for the, for the most part. And, and since 2008, it's reversed completely. The dual mandate is, in fact, there's uh, some research that shows that the dual mandate wasn't even communicated to the New York Fed through the FOMC communication, written communication, at ever until 2008, it's the first time. So it's now become, if you like, to me, a, another reason for the unusual interventions and the unusual discretion. And so that worries me quite a bit, if you like. So I'm very concerned about unemployment. I have this unemployment picture. I have this volatility of the economy, the Great Recession is a tragedy, what's happened to unemployment. But I think what you have to ask yourself is maybe that extra attention to unemployment um, is really one of these unintended consequences. And it's bringing higher unemployment. And that's certainly the way to interpret 2003, 4, and 5. Why did they take the rates so low? Well, worried about deflation, whatever it is. But that unemployment consideration was part of it. And if you take my story completely, look what happened. Unemployment went into double digits as a result of that, at least a partial result of that. And the same thing may be happening as we speak. So you have to be very careful. And I think the more the Fed can find a way to be more rule-like, and if the dual mandate is getting in its way, let's talk about that. Let's try to fix it. But uh, those are two, two answers to your question. We are out of time. Thank you very much, John.